Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in the presence of someone in which you felt like you were in the presence of greatness? This happened to me several years ago in which I had the opportunity to meet a man from East Africa whose name is Hussein. In fact, I think we've got a picture uh, of my meeting with Hussein. Hussein grew up in a very strict Muslim country over in East Africa. He was raised in a very strict family. He was advancing in Islam in which he was chosen to become the man who every morning early in the morning, would give the community call to invite people to prayer. He became so enthralled with this work, it became his identity. This is a man who took great pride in his work. He's a staunch Muslim. This is also a man who one morning woke up and he could not speak. He was practically mute. He lost the ability to communicate. Fear and panic overwhelmed him. He began walking around the streets of his city, unsure of what to do next. He saw a crowd of people gathered and leaned in to see what they were doing. And it was a group of Christians from there in his home country who were preaching the gospel. He heard the good news of what Jesus had done through his death, burial, and resurrection that he is the God who knows us and loves us and is ready to forgive us of all of our sins if we turn from our sin and trust in him by faith and trust in him alone. It's in that moment that Hussein was humbled and he realized, I need Jesus. He gave his life to Christ and his life was radically changed. He connected with the local church. He began getting discipled and growing in his knowledge of Christ. His voice was restored. His life was transformed. He went home to tell his family about his new faith in Christ. His father knew about it. And as soon as he met his dad at the door, his father said, I disown you. I do not know you. Brokenhearted by the new relationship that's now broken with his father, he left away, went away sad. He returned back later for his belongings and his clothes, but his father had burned them all. He had nothing. He had Jesus in the local church. But he kept preaching the gospel. He started making disciples himself. He started teaching people about the Bible. What he would learn from a church planter, he began teaching to others. He began preaching the gospel. He started going into mosques. And he would walk in and he would tell people about the good news of Christ and how they can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus and that God has come to us. We don't have to work ourselves to him. He has come to us in the person of Jesus and everything necessary for salvation. We don't have to try and earn it. He's already done it for us through the work of Christ. And he would preach and he would get beaten up. He would suffer In fact, he told me, he says, if I took my shirt off, I could show you the scars across my back of the whippings that I've taken. Death threats started getting more and more serious. He was rushed by the church out of the city and out of the country for his safety. But as I met this man, he was beaming with joy. The peace that surpasses understanding was upon his life. As I looked him in the eyes, he was full of compassion and love as he talked about how all the things that Jesus had done for him. You see, when you meet Jesus, he changes your life. 
He changes everything about you. Jesus changes the way that you think, the way that you believe, the way that you feel, the way that you speak. He changes the way that you act. He changes the trajectory of your life. When you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, he changes everything about you. And we know this is true and it's pictured most perfectly in Acts chapter nine. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter nine. We're walking through the book of Acts together as a faith family. It's taken us a, about a year to get from chapters one through eight. We're now going to be returning, now that the holiday season is over, we're going to be returning back to this great historical narrative of the early church. And we're going to do a three-week mini-series called Life Change, looking at the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Now, this is not hyperbole. I don't think that this is exaggeration when I say that Acts 9 is the single greatest moment in the history of the church. Paul is arguably the greatest Christian in history. And the salvation story of his life is about not only his radical life change, but what happens to him transforms the entire world. You see, you and I are followers of Jesus because of this moment we're about to read in Acts chapter 9. Uh, for me, I was 18 years old, and I was in my bedroom one night, 1 a.m., and I turned to 1 Corinthians 2.9, a letter that Paul wrote in which he said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And I knew that I didn't. And at the age of 18, I bow my knee and I give my life to Jesus and he radically transformed my life. All of it began here in Acts chapter nine, that God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to rescue this man who would not have his life changed, but he would be notorious for preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, and writing letters to strengthen the churches that he would plant. Now, could God in his sovereign purposes and in providence chosen someone else to get the gospel to the Gentiles? Of course he could have. And yet this is the plan that God had, would use this man right here, this terrorist, this man who's trying to kill believers, this man who is the arch enemy of the church, becomes the evangelist who gets the gospel to the nations. It's amazing as you study his life, and as you can hear in my voice, he's a hero of mine. I, I love the Apostle Paul and his writings because it's so transformed my life and who I am, the way that I think and the way that I believe. But this is a man who couldn't get over how Jesus had changed his life. He told the, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, for I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul could not get over what Christ had done in his life. His salvation came not only as a shock to him, but we're gonna see in the next several weeks, it came as a complete shock to the entire church. And this is a, a great reminder, y'all, that no one is too far from the grace of God. God can save anybody. This is a reminder that the man with the hardest of hearts, the woman with the sketchiest of pasts, the teenager that's full of pride, that kid full of anger and vitriol, that college student full of unbelief is a perfect candidate for salvation. No one is too far from the saving grace of Jesus. No matter who they are, if people are still breathing, Jesus can still save them. This is good news for us. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, 
I want us to see the full picture of what Saul was like before Jesus changed his life. So with your finger there in Acts chapter 9, uh, backpedal just a little bit with me back to Acts chapter 7 verse 58. As you remember, we went through the book of Acts in chapter 7 back in October and November looking at Stephen, this great deacon, this great hero of the faith who stands before the Sanhedrin, the great high um, high court, the Supreme Court of Israel, and gives an account. He preaches the gospel, and he so enrages them that he is sentenced to death by stoning. And we see where he is taken outside of the city in verse 58 of Acts chapter 7 says, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's like Luke is putting a bookmark here. He's planting this name like, don't forget this name. He's going to come back up again. But I want you to know what role he played in the death and the murder of Stephen. He goes on to say in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. This is a bad dude. This is a guy who's trying to snuff out and to destroy the church. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Scripture says, Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. I love this moment in Acts 9. God at this moment is going to advance the kingdom of Christ all across the world for thousands of years through this one moment. What I want you to see this morning in the text is I want you to notice how Jesus is at work in the life of Saul in saving him and how he is still at work today in saving you. First thing I want you to see in the text, I want you to see the rage of Saul against the church. The rage of Saul against the church. Saul was zealous in persecuting the church. He saw these Christ followers of enemies of Judaism that must not be tolerated but destroyed. We've already seen where he oversaw the stoning of Stephen and he held the coats of those who were hurling rocks at Stephen's body. He kicked down the doors and busted into living rooms of these believers, these followers of the way. From his perspective, it's time to stamp out once and for all these heretics, these followers of the way. It's an interesting phrase you see there in verse two because Christians would not be called Christian 
until Acts chapter 11, verse 26 at Antioch. So most common theme you'll see throughout the book of Acts is they're called followers of the way. Where does that phrase followers of the way come from? Well, it probably comes from when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, these followers of the way were not only proclaiming Jesus and believing in Jesus, they were following Jesus with their life. They were indeed living for Christ. They had abandoned their own way and they were now walking a new path. They were walking a new way in the way of Christ. This is the path that you are to go. May I ask you, whose path are you following? As you live your life, are you living for you? Are you saying, listen, I believe in Jesus, but I'm gonna do what I want. I'm gonna go the direction of my life. Hear me, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and go your own path. We follow Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. The call to be a follower of Jesus is one in which you not only surrender your life to Jesus, but you obey his commands and you walk with him. You follow him. He leads you. He dictates the direction of your life and you trust him and you bank your soul upon him. And this is what it means to be a disciple. Well, as for these followers of the way, Saul hated them. He wanted to murder and destroy anyone who claimed to be a part of this new movement, which one day, all of this fury, this rage, this vitriol that Saul has, he's never going to forget it. Later on, we're going to see in Acts 22, when Paul is standing before this mob that's rioting around him, and they're trying to tear him limb from limb for proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord and the King. And he tells them his testimony, and he says in Acts 22, 4, I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail. In Acts 26, he stands before King Herod Agrippa, and he's, he tells the king, I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. You see, for Paul, he considered himself least of the apostles, not worthy to be an apostle because of how intense his persecution was against the church. And this is a guy who was embarrassed by his past. He tells the Galatian church, he says, for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. So you get the picture of the terroristic acts. And I use that word intentionally, terroristic. This is a guy who's trying to murder believers. But you know what I love about when Paul tells his testimony? As he describes his actions and what he was doing and why he was doing it, it's in the past tense. It's not who he is anymore. Jesus has changed his life. When he begins to describe this moment in Acts chapter nine, it's not who he is anymore. And may I say to you today, as you share your testimony, as you think about the life change that you have experienced in Jesus, your past is not who you are anymore. 
Your sin, your shame, your sketchy past does not define you. If you are in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. You are no longer defined by your past. God does not look at you and see the laundry list of sins that you have committed and then throw them back in your face. No, we just sang this together. All of your sins are nailed to the cross and you bear them no more. This is the gospel that we grab hold of, that we believe and we treasure because it has everything to do with who we are and where we're going. This gospel changes lives. It's a great reminder Acts 9 is a reminder that no one is beyond the grace of Jesus. The most lethal terrorist, the angriest atheist, the most pompous emperor is no match for the king of kings. You know, when you and I look at the news and we see how believers in Jesus are being persecuted in other parts of the world, I usually pray in two ways. My first prayer is for believers. God, give them strength, grace, perseverance. Help them to endure. I pray they would not retreat. They would not go back. God, give them grace and endurance. But then I'm also praying for the persecutors. God, open their eyes. Help them to see and believe. May their hearts be changed by Jesus. You see, I have such great confidence in the power of our God that when I see the work of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, I see future church planters. They just don't know it yet. God is able to save anybody and he can transform the heart of anybody. And we see this guy, Saul, who's breathing out murderous threats. And yet we see the power of God on display to transform this man's life. I was reminded this week of Richard Wormbrand. This is a man who was a believer living in communist Romania at the time, an atheistic communism that was overseeing the country. And he was imprisoned for 14 years because of his faith in Christ. And in his book, Tortured for Christ, he recalls this moment, this event that took place in which he says, a communist officer told a Christian he was beating, I am almighty as you suppose your God can be. I can kill you. The Christian answered, the power is all on my side. I can love you while you torture me to death. Only Jesus can empower someone to endure suffering and persecution with such grace, love, and forgiveness. This is a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel, that it's not just something that you believe, it becomes who you are, and it changes your life. Jesus enables people to endure hardship and suffering so that as those who are pouring out their anger, don't you know I have the power to kill you? And them responding, don't you know I have the power to die? Don't you realize that the worst thing that, is, that can ever happen to me has already happened 2,000 years ago at the cross. Because of what Jesus endured for me, I can now face whatever is in front of me. This is why Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
He says, rather fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. As believers, we can be bold as lions in the face of persecution because the worst thing that could happen is death. And guess what? We get to go be with Jesus. This is why the writer of Hebrews, I love this, Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. I can't go here long because I get you all out on time for lunch. But Hebrews 2, 4, if you're wrestling through the fear of death as a believer, go read Hebrews 2. Because one of the things that Jesus died for was to give you victory over fear of death. As followers of Jesus, because of the resurrection of Christ, you no longer have to fear death. You can look it square in the eye because you know the Savior who defeated it lives inside of you. You are enabled and empowered by the Spirit to face the worst of circumstances with confidence and joy because Christ is in you. The one who defeated death will enable you to have victory even in the midst of hardship, suffering, and persecution. It's amazing to think about that this man who is persecuting the church will one day be humbled by the gospel as we see in Acts 9 And he will write, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved us. At this same Saul will one day write, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Quick exercise. If you were right now to list out the top five names of people in your life who you're convinced it's impossible for them to come to know Jesus, what names would you write down? This might be a good exercise for this afternoon. Just write down their names. And at the top of that page, I want you to write, nothing is impossible with God. God is able to save that list of five that you write down. God is able to transform his greatest enemy into his greatest friend. He does it through the death of Christ. That's what God's done with me and you. Romans 5, we were enemies of God. We were, Ephesians 2, dead in our sins and trespasses. We were by nature objects of wrath, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ. God has transformed your heart. He has changed you. He has given you a new life. This is what God does for us in the gospel, that nothing is impossible with God, that he can change anybody's hearts, including our own. Do you remember Stephen's last words before his life was taken from him in Acts 7? As these stones are being hurled at him, as his bones are breaking, as his flesh is being ripped off by these boulders, he prays these last words. Lord, do not hold these sins against them. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Who heard him pray that? Saul, holding the clothes. How did he respond? The text doesn't tell us, but in my sanctified imagination, I presume that he was scoffing. Like, forgive. What do you know about that? And here we are in Acts 9. 
And Stephen's prayer is being answered. The man who is pouring out murderous threats is the one whom God chooses to rescue and redeem and to save and to change the world. You see, as you pray for your enemies, as you pray for those who are far from God, God hears, God sees, God knows, and by his grace and for his glory, he very well may answer your prayer for your enemies to be rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is a God who is able to do it. Maybe you're thinking, man, ah, that is me. I could fill a library full of books of my past and my sin and everything that I've done to violate God's law. Please know that one drop of blood of G from Jesus can wash you of all of your sin. Oh, how precious is the blood of Christ that you can be wiped clean, made new, all by coming into his presence and seeking Jesus, saying, Jesus, please, by your grace, would you forgive me? Would you wash me? Would you take away my stain of sin? You see, though your sins are red as crimson, he will make you white as wool. He'll wash you and make you clean. And see, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize how much more and more and more I'm in desperate need of his grace and mercy and forgiveness. I've shared this with you before. I thought by the time I turned 30, I'd have the New Testament memorized and I wouldn't sin anymore. Neither has happened yet. You and I are still in need of grace and God offers it to us in Christ. He offers you an Atlantic Ocean full of grace and forgiveness for all who humble themselves and come before a bloodstained cross. This is what God offers to you in Jesus. And this is what God is offering to Saul on the Damascus Road. The second thing we see happening in the text is the power of Jesus to humble the proud. As Paul is whacking, uh, whacking, walking, easy Bruce, walking, with swagger and bravado on his mission to arrest and kill Christians, he's confronted on the Damascus Road. A light flashes around him. He hits the ground. He hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This light that shines around him, it's the glory of Jesus showing up, right? If you go back and say the Old Testament, you see when the glory of God shows up, people die, right? This is the mercy of God that he is not killing Saul on the spot. And he confronts him in this moment. His light appears and it startles and it shakes. And what does it do? It sends him to his knees. You see, verse four is a picture of all unbelievers when they stand before King Jesus. Let me say that again. Verse four is a picture of all unbelievers when they stand before the glory of King Jesus. In fact, this man on the ground will one day write Philippians 2. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every knee. There's coming a day in which Satan will bow a knee. 
and confess through gritted teeth, Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, we either bow by choice or by force. You either humble yourself or you will be humbled. If you're not a follower of Christ today, please humble yourself. Bow your knee by choice because one day if you don't, you will be forced to bow before the king. And that's the reality. Either you humble yourself or you will be humbled. And here is Saul in this moment. He is being humbled. He's being brought low before the king of kings like every arrogant person will one day be. Either you humble yourself or you will be humbled. You see, when people hate and curse the name of Christ, I'm like, you have no idea who you're talking about. You have no idea who you're messing with. This is the king, I tell you. The king over all kings. The one who has sovereign authority over all. The one who, Isaiah 66, 1, the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. This is who you're messing with. Humble yourself before King Jesus. You see, you've got to get low before him, but when you do, oh, the grace that he shows you, that when you take what's in the dark and you bring it into the light and you let him heal you with his gospel, oh, the love he overwhelms you with, that you're like, why in the world did I hold on to my pride? Why did I hold on to my arrogance and selfishness? Why do I continually put myself first? Oh, if I could find the freedom and the joy of putting Christ first in my life. In fact, as believers, we know this, that when we try to take first place of our own lives, it leads back to bondage. It leads back to slavery. It's only through the surrender that we find freedom. But this is what Paul is experiencing in this moment is that God is humbling him and God is rescuing him. God is saving him. You see, for you as a believer, you were saved by God, from God, for God, through God's Son. Don't miss that. I wish we had more time to unpack this. You were saved by God. He rescued you. He saved you. From God, he saved you from his wrath, all the mercy he shows you in Christ. He saved you for himself, for his glory, and he did it through his son. And you see, he takes his enemies and he makes us friends all through his son's shed blood on the Christ. And if you are in Christ, it's because at some point you met Jesus on your Damascus road. There was a moment in your life, maybe it was at a church or at a winter retreat or at a summer camp or at the kitchen table with your parents or on the side of a road. You had a Damascus Road moment and you met Jesus and he changed you. You heard the gospel and you believed. He changed your heart and he made you new. And this is what he does. He still meets with people on Damascus Roads. And maybe for some of you, he's meeting you here today. And today is a day of salvation. Maybe you grew up in church your whole life. You've been baptized and did all the right religious things, and yet you've never given your life to Jesus. Oh, that today would be the day in which you humble yourself and you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me. There's no one to impress in this room, all right? 
We're a bunch of people who are broken and messed up and in desperate need of grace, but we continually come to Jesus to find grace. You're in a room of people who are rooting for you. People who want you to experience what they have experienced. You see, for all of us, getting into the kingdom is like walking into an arena through a turnstile. We go through one at a time. And in which you come in, you say, man, I'm messed up. My life is broken, but I need Jesus. And oh, he meets you and says, get in here. You are more than welcome. You're mine. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm adopting you into my family. I'm going to forgive you of your past, wash you of what's all, everything in your past. There's no more shame with me because I don't rub your face in your past. I'm the God who forgives and sets you free. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to put you in a new community. I'm going to change everything about you. And I'm going to give you a hope and a future. Now, the next 20 to 50 years are me really, really hard, but I'm going to be with you. You're going to face hardship and trial and suffering, but I'm going to live inside of you. My Holy Spirit's going to take up residence inside of you and seal you until the day of redemption. But then when you take your last breath or when I return to get you, you're going to see me face to face. And your faith is going to be sight and we're going to be together forever. You're going to bask in ever increasing joy and ever increasing grace, ever increasing peace, ever increasing knowledge of God. And it's going to be amazing. And I know you can't wait and I can't wait to spend it with you. Come on. That's the gospel that we believe and it changes us. That's the gospel that Jesus changes your life. And maybe you're here today saying, I need that. Well, may I say to you, his power is stronger than your will. His truth is greater than your doubt and his blood is sufficient to cover your sin. But did you notice the language of Jesus in verse four? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, wouldn't it make more sense if Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my disciples? Or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? It's because Jesus takes the suffering of his people personally. An attack on the church is an attack on Jesus himself. When you believe the gospel, Jesus so united himself to you in which he says, I am not ashamed to call you my brother. I am not ashamed to call you my sister. And when enemies rise up against you, I want you to know they're rising up against me. That when someone messes with you, they're messing with me. Jesus is uniting himself to his people, to his church. He's calling out Saul saying, you're not just messing with disciples. You're not just messing with the church. You're messing with me. And when you face difficulty and trial and you have to face your enemies, Jesus takes your suffering per personally. He sees what you endure. He knows what you have to go through. And he promises, I'm going to be with you and I will take care of it. Trust me. Last week, David Peacock and I unpacked Romans 12 and we kind of didn't get to the point all the way to the end where we could get down there. I think it's what verse, like verse 19 or 20 where Paul says, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, right? As believers, we don't take vengeance out on people. Like revenge is no longer part of our vocabulary, right? Like Jesus died so that we don't have to seek revenge for ourselves, okay? 
But those who rise up against us, those enemies who persecute us, those people who mock you and roll their eyes and make fun of you and make sure you don't get promoted and are, are frustrated over your faith in Christ, and they tell you to stop talking about Jesus and as they just work against you, our response is not vengeance, right? The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. The Lord will take care of that. And so we pray for them. We pray, God, I pray that the sins that they committed and commit will be placed upon Jesus and not on them. Lord, I pray that the vengeance that they deserved would be indeed placed upon your son through their faith in him. Does that make sense? That indeed you and I have an avalanche of of sins we've committed and we deserve God's wrath and yet God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He treated his his son as our sins deserve. And so now we pray the same thing for our enemies. In fact, that's the impact point I'm calling our church to, is for you to pray for your enemies, that Jesus would meet them, humble them, and save them. Meet them, humble them, and save them. That's what God's doing in Acts chapter nine. And that's what God is still doing today. If you're a believer in this room, it's because at some point you met with God. You heard the gospel. You were humbled and he saved you. This moment in Acts 9 is so significant because it leads to life change. This guy, Saul, he's never going to be the same as we're going to see as we study further. But because God saved Saul... God saved Hussein. Hussein in East Africa has been instrumental in seeing more than 33,000 people coming to faith in Christ. Hussein has planted six churches and is continually planting more. And here you and I are today. The same Savior that changed Paul is the same Savior that changed Hussein, is the same Savior who's changed us. If you're in Christ, your life has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ.